0: Anybody that definitively says they know where cannabinoids are gonna be in the next two to three years is wrong. It's too dynamic,
1: it's too uncertain exactly what that looks like. If you haven't noticed, cannabis has crept its way into the global dialogue, but it's still dependent on government regulation to go mainstream. Given that fact, how do you move forward and position your company strategically and financially as markets grow and mature? What we do know is that
0: there is a massive tailwind and massive upside for cannabinoids globally. So you want to have a diversified business that takes advantage of that.
1: Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. And hey, before we get started, welcome to the arena is definitely turning heads and getting a lot of attention. And we're very grateful for that. Lots of great guests in the queue. Uh, so please hit the subscribe button now and make sure you're part of the arena going forward. We appreciate it. With the use and demand for cannabis exploding around the globe, there's an incredible addressable market out there, but there's also risk. Cannabis is still a hot button issue for some regulators and there's no timetable for broad legalization. Recreational versus medical, legalization versus decriminalization, taxation and legacy markets, the industry is as dynamic as it is confusing at times. It takes a smart, nimble company to navigate these issues, one like Aurora Cannabis. Based in Canada, Aurora produces cannabis products for medical and recreational use, and has expanded their global footprint into 25 countries in no small part due to the work of CEO Miguel Martin. Breaking into different international markets isn't easy, but Miguel understands the value of reputation, process and being a first mover and how that can prepare Aurora to pounce as new markets open up both medically and recreationally. Today with Miguel, we'll be discussing all aspects of the cannabis industry, recreation to medical to science and innovation. Let's enter the arena with Miguel Martin. You know, this is a market that's so fascinating. Anything that's kind of new and volatile and dynamic gets the attention of investors. Maybe you could just talk about the opportunity that you saw and see around the world with cannabis and related products and, and, you know, looking out 10 years what what does that market look like in your mind
0: Well, I think that's a great way to phrase the question because it it really is a global opportunity. And when you think about cannabinoids, there's all different parts of it. There's clearly a great interest in the rec business. If you look at where you can have recreational sales, obviously there's some states in the U.S., but there's not a federal construct. You have, you know, our home country, which is Canada, where we're based, which allows rec sales and only a couple other spots around the world. Medical uh, cannabis really has had, you know, some of the fastest growth and is clearly the Space where you're seeing more and more companies adopt um, that regimen. And so the space is moving really quickly. And, you know, a leader like Aurora tries to, you know, have excellence in, you know, what we call the sort of the four key areas. First is the recreational sales. Second would be the domestic sales. Third is international sales. And then lastly is this really interesting space that you see in all other forms of agricultural products, but it's just coming uh, to cannabis, which is genetics and biosynthetics and Aurora is um, emerging as leader in that
1: space. It seems like while there'll, there'll be ebbs and flows of the market and the opportunity in legalized jurisdictions, you're positioned in, in a great sense. But before we get to those four segments, I wanted to just go back to the company for a minute. When you showed up at Aurora, you know, after the acquisition, what was the state of the company? What did, what did you see? And obviously um, COVID was a part of that. So what, if you can kind of go back uh, to that time, what, what did you see? and, And what did you see as your priorities?
0: You know, Aurora was a company in transition. Like many of the Canadian LPs, you know, there were the heydays where, you know, an amazing amount of money was being raised. And there was this thesis that the Canadian companies would leverage that federal regulatory status and be able to ship cannabis all around the world, including the U.S., that was going to open up very quickly. And unfortunately, what was learned is that regulatory environment was going to take a little bit longer, that many countries around the world would really want to have the economics stay within their... Um, Country, and that the US just wasn't quite ready yet. And so there was a right sizing that needed to happen of the company. So the company had already made some tough decisions about right-sizing infrastructure and headcount, and we had to continue that. Secondly, we started to bring in, you know, a different type of talent that potentially was at the company. These are folks with decades of experience, you know, at, at pharmaceutical companies and large CPG companies, experiences that really helped us put the company on the right path and the path that we're on right now. And then lastly, you know, we had to figure out exactly what we were going to be, you know, as the company evolved. And when I came in, medical really wasn't, you know, uh, really first and foremost in the company's thoughts. And it was odd because the company was built upon medical and it really its strength was in its long history in serving patients and particularly veteran patients in Canada um, in, a, in a tremendous way. And so we repositioned that and really went around the world and decided which are the countries that were going to make sense for us long term.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, you know, COVID whacked a lot of different businesses yours included and where you are right now with uh, the SG&A reductions the the capex reductions uh, shoring up the balance sheet you're doing all of this without having to sacrifice the bets that you have on the table uh, in terms of revenue growth M- maybe you can just comment on kind of uh, you you already commented on the balance sheet but just kind of SGNA run rate pathway to profitability but you're not starving the company you're not cutting to the bone you're you're basically um, still providing investments for the future and be able to take advantage of that 10 year opportunity that we talked about yeah you know i think it's a
0: great point you know the company at one point was spending over 100 million dollars a quarter on SGA, and we have that down to the low 40s um, at one point you know we had over nine manufacturing and processing facilities that you know would have created a situation where we had the capacity to make five times the amount of product that we need today. I think if you look at the number of countries that we were in, at one point it was over you know 14 or 15 and some of those countries we weren't making any money in. And so we're now operating in 12 countries. Our international business is profitable. Our domestic medical business is a really shining star. One of the interesting things about this business is you can make a lot of investments and really you know not see the upside from them. But by the same token, as you look at genetics and biosynthetics, those are investments the company made previously that we can now monetize in a very thoughtful way. Another thing that's interesting about our business is having such strength in medical with a number one Canadian LP in terms of medical, there are efficiencies between that and the rec business, selling similar products that benefit patients on the medical side, but also that consumers find interest in. So as we look at our investments going forward, we really focused on those areas that we know we can make money on. You've got discount flour, which is a big part of the business, where in many cases, people are just breaking in the, even or losing money. And then you've got margin accretive categories like premium flour and concentrates um, and edibles and vapor. And those are higher margin pieces of business. And so one of the things I learned in my past life is don't chase overall market share, chase, you know, profitability and look for that profit pool and what percentage of that you can have. And so that's what we really focused on.
1: Yeah. You know, if you're just pursuing market share that That's uh, not profitable. We've already covered a lot, but maybe we could just go back and and slowly unpack each one of these uh, segments. Taking a deeper dive on that, what does it really take to succeed in medical that you guys do great that your peers maybe don't do as well as you?
0: Well, uh, medical is is really challenging. First and foremost, you have to create products that really resonate with the patient. You know, patients go to great length with their clinician um, in order to you know get that prescription and to find the right product. Once they find the right product, they typically stick with it. Secondly, is navigating the variety of different patient mindsets and capabilities because most of this is done online and through a conversation with one of our call centers, and so you have to make significant investments much more so than you ever would have to, to allow not only the patient to be able to navigate that experience and that redemption process, but also the clinicians and the physicians to make sure they're doing the right thing. And that's a constant support network. Once they've gotten into the query is making sure that that product arrives exactly as intended in the way in which they want it to on time and into their house. And so you have to bring up a lot of capabilities around DTC. Now patients in their situations also are evolving. And so there has to be a constant connection and reinforcement that the products that you've offered them still meet their needs and that potentially new products and new, you know, prescriptions for them might better serve them. And for Canada, many of our patients are veterans. And I think that brings on a a completely separate forms of obligations. Obviously, the recognition of their service is first and foremost, but veterans have their own set of needs and expectations. And we have to do a lot of different things in order to service that group. Lastly, in some cases that you have union groups and you have these collaborations or collectives of patients that will have their own needs. And so once you really get an excellence at that, you can then really, you know, port that to other countries. The other thing, you know, beyond the actual interaction with the patient and the clinician is the regulatory authorities. You look at key markets like Germany and Israel right now, you know, the incredibly strict provisions they have on product quality and labeling, registration and production, all are way different than anything you'd find in a traditional rec market or a CPG market. And we've invested significant resources in order to meet those um, requirements. Germany, you know, is a great example on flour. Many companies were not able to even get their products qualified, and so therefore they're not even in the game. The hard work that we did in order To get uh, our products to exceed the expectations of the German regulators is the same work that we've now had to do with Israel.
1: Yeah, so, you know, big technology investment, there's barriers to entry around the medical business, not just anybody can raise some money and get into it. And I think the evidence of that, that's not just talk, is you're rewarded with high margins. Like this is not a commodity where anybody can kind of get in and do it. And maybe you can comment on those gross margins and how that provides a foundation for the business there is
0: a massive amount of investment that the company has made. The company really, its roots are in the medical business and so we're able to leverage those long-term investments and really see the benefit you know, of them today. The other thing is the margins in the medical business have been very steady. You don't see a degradation in the medical business like you see in the rec business. And also, as I mentioned earlier, when you meet the expectations or and sometimes exceed the expectations of a patient or a clinician, they're not apt to leave and so you don't see this dynamic nature of market share changes in it. The other point I'll make is that the regulators um, have a strong relationship with with each other. So doing the right thing and having a responsible distribution network in France, in Germany, in Israel, in Poland, and Czech Republic, you know, builds upon itself. And these regulators always want to do the right thing. And I think, you know, Aurora has been recognized for that. We were really, you know, pleased to be granted three of the nine tenders, all of the flower tenders, in France. That's a massive market. And it's going to be a significant contributor to our overall um, profits and revenue. But again, the reason we were able to do that is because of the strong reputation and the strong history that we built in neighboring markets like the UK and Germany.
1: I would imagine that the regulators seek you guys out. You know, you can, you have the ability to educate them, bring best practices in, so you're you're always going to be invited to quote unquote pitch for the business.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, and also as you mentioned in, in your opening remarks, we're just in the early days of cannabinoids, and for the so for these regulators, they're learning as well, and also you know there's a lot of pressure on them for them to get this right, as you can imagine. There are some folks that are a little you know, questioning about the role that cannabinoids are gonna have in the medical market. And so there's a really high bar for those regulators. So it, it's a great point that when they can find companies that are responsible and that understand the responsibilities around a product like this, they really gravitate towards them. And we, we take that very seriously. And uh, you know, we do everything we can to have societal alignment around our products, which is something I've learned in my over two decades of working in regulated products.
1: Yeah. So medical on a global scale you know when you look out over 10 years it's a huge opportunity. the rec market may be even bigger than that um, like you mentioned in the beginning slower to to take off and obviously it's a very political decision for the regulators but um, just a quick question on on Canadian rec do you think there is a shakeout underway with you know the fact that it is a fragmented market? there are several competitors. Do you think there's a shakeout where you can kind of step back, let them kill each other, invest in other areas, and then you'll ultimately have the wherewithal to be in premium product and be there at the end um, making money?
0: I mean, if you if you think about the you know the thesis of the Canadian LPs is that they were going to be you know world beaters and and have all of these advantages and and that may still be the case. But if you look at the Canadian market today, it's clearly the shakeout has already started. You're seeing discount flour, which is in many cases a, a product you can best break even on, and in some cases lose money. You know, really growing, and so that's just not as you know a long term success. You're also seeing the top seven companies only represent about 40% of the total business in a given category. That's not natural. You know, we all look at California and Colorado because you're seeing, you know, maturity there in a rec market. And you've seen an articulated category. Premium sales are growing. New products are doing well. There's strong economics. And Canada's going to get there. But to your point, there absolutely is going to be a shakeout. And with the capital markets now really seized up for those mid-sized and smaller companies, I think things are going to get a lot harder. Now, that doesn't mean that a small company can't be successful. We see some really talented craft growers and some that we're even partnering with that I think will have success. But long term, you're going to have some smaller, niche craft growers that will make some money. But you're going to have the bigger players that will have efficiencies and have advantages to better. And I think we're sort of in the midst of all that. The other thing to remember in Canada is its early days. So I know it's easy for people to sort of question what's going on in Canada, this or that, but I give the regulators a lot of credit. You've got different provincial rules, you've got a federal construct that in all cases doesn't always match up with those provincial rules, and they're doing you know, a pretty good job. The other thing is half of the sales of cannabis in Canada still go through what we call the legacy market, which is the you know, non-legal market, and, um, and that's starting to change through enforcement. I think you're going to see a stronger, um, more articulated, more pre premium rec market going forward and at that point you know the companies that have made investments there will do well and also we'll be able to take those learnings into the U.S. at a time in which the U.S. goes um, federally legal
1: as an industry cannabis is at a huge inflection point but what's next isn't clear I wanted to know where Miguel thinks the industry is headed and how Aurora is positioned to capitalize. Anybody that definitively says they know where cannabinoids
0: are gonna be in the next two to three years is wrong. No, it's just, it's too dynamic, it's too uncertain exactly what that looks like. What we do know in history has proven is that there is a massive tailwind and massive upside for cannabinoids globally. So you want to have a diversified business that takes advantage of that. So what do, you know, what can we see from what's been happening? Medical cannabis is the fastest growing segment by far globally, Germany, Israel, UK, Poland, Czech Republic, France, that we're now seeing, all of those are medical markets first. So that is is without question. And you're gonna continue to see a movement. It's the same thing in the US with the States. Secondly, you definitely see advantages for those companies that have excellence in medical when those geographies turn into wreck. What do I mean by that? You can sell the same products. You can use the same production facilities. You have the same regulators. All of those things add up to being successful. Third is, what we do know is that there are other forms of economics beyond just rack and medical. This is not gonna be the one agricultural category where biosynthetics and genetics and science around the plant, its health, its yield, aren't gonna be significant. And so Aurora is a strongly diversified company, and I'm awful proud of where we are right now. If we were rec-only right now in Canada, it would be a disaster. And having the strength of the medical business with mid-60s margin, with global portability, has really benefited us in a really strong way. I am amazed there isn't more conversation about medical cannabis as being the foundation of all things chemoids. And I understand the economics of the rack business in the US, but it's a big world out there, as we've all learned in this global economy. Now, in terms of the US, I would say having spent a lot of my career interacting with the FDA, this will not be the one regulated item and particularly with cannabis and cannabinoids that the federal government is not going to have a piece of. There's no possible way that there's not going to be a role for the federal government. There's no possible way that the FDA is not going to play a role in the regulation of these products. It's like saying that the feds aren't going to have a piece of alcohol or the feds aren't going to have a piece of tobacco. It's just it's not realistic. And so that doesn't and people will say to me when we go, what about states rights? This doesn't preclude states rights. And so I think, you know, Biden, President Biden has been quite consistent that cannabis has not been, you know, front of mind for him. And when pressed on the issue, he has said consistently medical first and decriminalization. And so, you know, when people say, what are you doing to get ready for the U.S. or what are you going to buy in the U.S.? My answer is every dollar that we put into Israel or France or Poland or Germany or U.K. where I can make money is a dollar well spent for the U.S. Because all of the same standards and all the same production metrics and all that stuff is going to apply when the U.S. opens up. And I think it's going to be a little bit longer. And I know people don't want to hear that. But no one's going to wake up one day with President Biden signing comprehensive cannabis legislation. Congress will be involved, the Senate will be involved, and we'll see this thing coming. The other thing about cannabis is there's no evidence that first mover status has made a difference. Look at how dynamic the market shares are, Canada, Colorado, California. And so you don't have to be first to win. And so we're very confident that with a company like Aurora, that's got excellence in biosynthetics, science, genetics, medical, and a relevant rec business, that there are going to be plenty of partners that will want to come in. The other thing that I don't know that everyone wants to hear is at a time in which that happens, you're going to have a whole different category of competitors. Big pharma is going to come in. You've seen investments from the tobacco companies, obviously some of the alcohol companies that make big investments. And that's just a different animal that I think, you know, we've had to deal with in Canada and some other markets that we'll have to deal with in the U.S. And so, listen, I wish it would happen tomorrow, but we're definitely going to be ready when it does.
1: I'm confident and totally agree with what you're saying, how it it is going to um, pan out over a long period of time. It's a secular, massive tailwind. And with the medical and rec stuff you're doing, you obviously have the foundation to capitalize on it as it's expanding. Um, I did want to cover the science and innovation unit because I think that's fascinating, Miguel. Maybe just tell us what you're doing there uh, and the business model of it, which is so cool. And obviously you've got the wherewithal to invest in something like that when others might not. Maybe talk about that unit and what you're doing.
0: Aurora, as many people know and some might criticize, has spent billions of dollars acquiring companies with a lot of different capabilities. One of those acquisitions put Aurora in the position to have what potentially is the largest genetics lab in the world on cannabinoids and cannabis products. We screen over 7,000 cultivars. What's not known about cannabis today is that there is a lack of diverse genetics because of the inability, unlike with other categories, to cross-border a lot of these genetics. And we have continued to develop really some significant genetics. Now, on flower products particularly, you're seeing this evolution in this search um, for higher potency, higher terpene and really more articulated products. We've been able uh, most recently to launch three new products, all high, you know, 26 plus potency, high terp levels and already seen a million dollars in sales. What's also interesting as a secondary line of business is we're now selling those genetics to other companies. And we had a tremendous craft grower named North 40, who's very well known in Canada as one of the preeminent craft growers, take one of our genetics and get almost 30 potency with a product called farm gas. We're gonna have then bring that into our portfolio. So this ability to screen, develop, and then grow in our world-class grow facilities is a significant advantage as we look at the value of genetics. The other thing in cannabinoids, which most people you know may not be thinking about is there a strong IP around those and you can have genetic markers on that so as we develop these not only can we get economics from them but we can also protect that IP around the world which creates significant profits so that's one key piece Um, the other piece would be around biosynthetics One of our acquisitions had a significant pathway that we think will be one of the most efficient pathways to create um, minor cannabinoids and other cannabinoids. If you look at the cost of certain minor cannabinoids, the ability to use biosynthetics like are used in many other areas is a significant profit generator. And we're in the midst of developing that right now as well as uh, defending those IP rights. And then lastly, there is incredible amount of science and experiential history and value to being able to grow um, cannabis products and develop cannabis products at large scale. So in many places around the world, you see very small operations um, that are either servicing a, a state or servicing a small country or a small geography. Um, Aurora's got a long history of developing massive outputs from these large-scale facilities. And as we get into this global cannabis economy, those three aspects of our science and innovation will really allow us. The good news is, in almost every case, the capex has already been spent. And so there's not a huge amount of capital needed to drive um, economics around those.
1: Yeah. And, you know, innovation is the lifeblood of any company. It sounds like you guys are all over it. And the IP angle is so interesting. You know, I think when you when you're on that um, cadence of reporting earnings every 90 days, and everybody's looking for an an exact number, um, what sometimes doesn't get appreciated is the strategic progress on innovation and IP and all of that stuff, which is going to set the company up for multiple levers to create value over time down the road. So when you uh, step back here, right, we talked about medical, we talked about REC, the opportunities, the science and innovation unit. You combine that with the uh, sg moderation, rationalizing the cost structure of the business to the current market. Maybe talk about the pathway to EBITDA profitability. And look, you know, the reason that you're not there yet is the company built a big global infrastructure uh, in anticipation of, you know, kind of a slow and steady march on legalization or medical. Maybe talk about um, the path to EBITDA profitability, how you create value, your view on acquisitions, that sort of stuff.
0: So, you know, I would say what's interesting about the cannabis companies that, you know, makes investing in them a, a bit different than in other ones is if you look at the largest Canadian LPs, we're all different. So we're structured different. Our businesses are wired differently. What we're trying to do is a little bit different, and so it's not like comparing Coke to Pepsi or comparing Ford to you know to GM. They're just they're different companies. So what is Aurora? What's unique about Aurora? And you've touched on a lot of it. It is our intent to be profitable, to be responsible, to be global and to be portable that we can take those businesses in different ways and the profitable one is a really important one and I know there's been frustration from investors about when is the company going to be profitable in the past as the company has talked about that path to profitability they've always talked about growth well we're going to see revenue growth here or we're going to see revenue growth there uh, we're going to see margin accretion and that's how we're going to get there the company you know had already announced 300 million dollars in, in efficiencies which was a massive piece and it delivered on those we most recently announced another 60 to 80 million um, a year in annualized efficiencies or over 15 million a quarter and so if you look at our last earnings which we were pleased to report last couple days we were in minus 13.9 on adjusted EBITDA basis so if you take the Q4 of our last fiscal which we just finished on and you take that revenue, and then you take those efficiencies, which are within our control, we will be break-even on an adjusted EBITDA basis. So said differently, we do not have to grow any revenue. Now, that's not our plan. And we've demonstrated, particularly in the medical business, we can grow revenue. But we, we don't have to grow any revenue, and we can be EBITDA positive. And so at that point, you would have, have a company um, with a significant amount of cash on its balance sheet. You'd have a company that would be making money. You'd have a company to be number one Canadian LP in terms of medical. You'd have innovation, science, and rec. And I think that's a really unique positioning for anybody that is long on the cannabis thesis. You know, we want to make you know, money from a free cash flow st- standpoint. We want to continue to grow our market share You know, in the medical business and the rec business. We want to demonstrate our excellence in innovation and science. But in terms of that, I think at that point, we would be one of only a few and probably one of the only that are our size that you know could say that. Now, if someone wants to bet on a more speculative company that's not making money and it's more like sort of a Silicon Valley type of model, that's fine. I've just always worked in companies that make money. And I think that's what shareholders want to see. And with medical margins in the mid 60s, um, albeit you know, the challenges you may see in the rec business, I think we can get there.
1: In a dynamic changing and growing industry, you can lose focus due to the sheer amount of opportunity. And in turn, this can adversely affect cash flows and capital levels. That's why Miguel has focused in large part on medical, which provides great margins and a solid foundation from which to grow. It's driving international expansion, And the ability to reinvest in bioengineering and IP, which could create significant barriers to entry down the road and high margin revenue streams as the industry unfolds. I'd like to thank Miguel Martin of Aurora for joining us today. He's clearly very experienced and a hands-on expert when it comes to regulated CPG businesses and what needs to happen to succeed. Once again, if you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behaviors.